You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Maybe seated. Excuse me. Thank you, Fu. Thank you, Joe and Sarah, for leading us in worship and song. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, Before we begin... We do have, as I said in the email I sent out, uh, Redemption Hill kids. So kids ages two to four, Miss Erica's right there. She can lead them into the classroom. Um, there will be, you have to get a tag to check them in, and then you have to use that tag to uh, check them out after the service. So uh, just as a way of reminder, on the first and third Sundays of the month, we will have Redemption Hill kids for ages two to four. And as I've said in the past, as we continue to grow and as we're able to do things responsibly and appropriately, we'll, we'll grow our Redemption Hill Kids ministry. So you can go now, kids ages 2 to 4. Well, this morning we are landing the plane in the letter to the Ephesians. Finally, <laughs> landing the plane. And I hope you've learned and been encouraged by what God says specifically in the book of Ephesians. So what can a preacher continue to say after, you know, really 27 weeks of looking at, you know, every word, sentence, and phrase? Well, I have a few more thoughts. (laughs) I know I've said a lot, but I have a few more thoughts. Uh, Let me first begin with these quotes that I used in the first sermon on the book of Ephesians. I used these back in February. Uh, Bible scholar Harold Horner said this, The letter to the Ephesians is one of the most influential documents in, in the Christian church. Uh, I love church history. I've studied a lot of church history. I've read a lot of books on church history. Took a lot of classes on church history. That's quite the statement. One of the most influential documents In the Christian church, a lot has been written. How about this one from another guy named Peter O'Brien? The letter to the Ephesians, one of the most significant documents ever written. So now we're moving outside the scope of church history, and we're talking about everything that's ever been written. I think they're proven to be correct. As you've heard from me, and as you've stuck your nose into the Bible, you've seen a lot. The letter to the Ephesians is this gem, and every time you turn it, you see more. And then you turn it again, and you see more. And you turn it again, and you see more. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. With verses 21 to 24 of Ephesians 6 as a launch pad, which is what Fu read, I want to sum up Ephesians by systematically going through one chapter at a time. if you ever like, if you ever like, wanted to take a Bible class on a particular book, it might kind of have that feel. Like, just give me the overview of the entire book. I'm kind of, kind of going to do that this morning. I want to remind you of what you've heard, and if you were not present um, at the beginning of Ephesians, hopefully it encouraged you to get back into God's Word and be like, you know, I wasn't here for chapter one, and what you just said about chapter one is pretty amazing. So maybe that invites you to go read chapter one and study for yourself or chapter 2, or whatever. So, I'm going to pray, as I usually do before I, as I always do before I preach, ask for God's help, and we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we come 
before your word and what you have already said and what you continue to say. And as we look at your word by the power of the spirit that is indeed at work within us, that you would open our hearts to be continually changed and conformed into the image of our Savior. Help us to that in a pray. Amen. Most of y'all, if not all of you, have heard the names uh, Michael Jordan, uh, LeBron James, I mean, Steph Curry, James Harden, Kevin Durant. We all know that Jordan's the GOAT. Amen. No, thank you. Uh, we all know that. Uh, but there's other names that are really good players, right? Um, all you younger folks probably like, oh, you know, LeBron James is the GOAT. Go study some history. Um, even if you're not a fan of basketball or the NBA, perhaps you've heard at least one or two of those names, at the very least. But here are some names that even a casual fan of the game of basketball might never, never heard of. Uh, Jordan Claxton, Montrose Harrell, Lou Williams, Eric Gordon, Jamal Crawford. Like, anybody? Maybe a few of you? If I mean, for the hardcore basketball fan who's engrossed in like fantasy basketball, you're like, yep, know that guy, know that guy who was on my fantasy team last year, got rid of him because he wasn't doing any good, he got injured, so I picked up that guy. Like one person in the crowd who's done that, you've heard those names. But the rest of us were like, who are you talking about? Well, the second list of players each received the sixth man award, right? It's the dude coming off the bench to replace the starter. And he was so good at it that he, they gave him an award. It's the sixth man award. And I'm willing to bet that if you were to ask the star player on any given team, they would tell you that every player on the team is valuable, especially the sixth man. If you're a spectator of any sport, you know the big names. You know the MVPs of the sport. You've seen the great plays and the most outstanding players. But it's, but it's okay to be an admirer of greatness and great players. Yes, I, I agree with that. But the sixth man is also making a difference. The sixth man plays an integral part of the team's overall success. I played a lot of sports growing up. You needed everyone on the team to do their part. It wasn't just about the star player, which I never was. But I certainly played a part, even if I never got off the bench. When you read the Bible, it's easy to focus on the most popular and outstanding characters, right? You read the Old Testament, who comes to mind? I mean, we got Abraham, right? You got Moses. I mean, dude met with God and got the Ten Commandments. I mean, when I go to heaven, I got a lot of, I got a lot of questions for Moses. You got the great King David. You get into the New Testament. Of course, we got the Apostle Paul. I mean... We went through Acts and saw a lot about Paul and Peter. We've been in Ephesians. Paul wrote Ephesians. You got John, who wrote like half of the New Testament, Revelation, the Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These three characters that I mentioned in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and John, following the teachings of Jesus, shaped Christianity as we know it. All these individuals have their place in history, right? While all these individuals are sinners and are flawed, right? They have our appreciation and gratitude for the times they were faithful to God in declaring the gospel. When we look at them, 
We look at them as they look to Christ. But here's the deal. We tend to romanticize these figures in our conscience and our imagination. We place them in a position, perhaps, sometimes that they do not belong. The same dynamic is going on with like the celebrity pastor culture in America and throughout the world, frankly. We look at the leader who is charismatic, eloquent in speech, and clever with words. Like a moth to the flame, we idolize the pastor or Christian leader who has the most likes on their YouTube page or has the blue check mark on Twitter. And I'm going to level with you all. There is an unhealthy church culture in America where pastors and experts on the outside have more sway than the brother or sister sitting next to you in the seat. Our outsized priority on the celebrities, why we're quickly, we quickly read past verses like 21 to 24, where we read about this man, Tithicus. Say that five times fast. Tithicus. Who's that guy? He's not a celebrity apostle or pastor. But he is the guy coming off the bench. He's that sixth man. I'm on the bet you have not heard of his name until this morning. Most of you. Tithicus. Tithicus is the reason why we still have these words in the book of Ephesians. He doesn't have a YouTube channel or a Twitter account. But his friendship with Paul proves that he was faithful, helped to show his faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his faithfulness cannot be measured with a human metric. It can't be. Tychicus, I'm going to mess that up five, six times. Tychicus shows up in the pages of Scripture at least four other times, perhaps five, he accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. We read about that in Acts 20. He delivered the letter to the Colossians, which we have in our Bible. He's also mentioned in 2 Timothy and Titus. Tithicus is not an insignificant figure. He's not insignificant because he's mentioned in the Bible, but because of his character and his faithfulness. He is significant. And here's the case I want to make this morning. Be like Tychicus. It's like the third way I've said it. I think I can make a case that his character and faithfulness are the reason why we have the book of Ephesians in our Bible. We know Paul had personal affection for him. Paul calls him a beloved brother and a faithful servant of the Lord. That's verse 21. He, the one, is the one who delivered Paul's letter to the elders at Ephesus. Tychicus believed in all the theological truths of Ephesians, which I'll get to in a moment. He's not the great Apostle Paul. He's not the bold Apostle Peter. There's no record of him writing or even preaching a sermon. He was just a dude who had an insatiable desire to see the name of Jesus go to the ends of the earth. He's just a regular Joe, which is why I'm highlighting him this morning. In this room, no offense folks, in this room are a bunch of unremarkable people who are called by God to do remarkable things. Listen, I'm an ordinary, unremarkable pastor who is called by God to be faithful, just like Tychicus. Can't even pronounce his name. You should also think of yourself and Tychicus as a missionary. He crisscrossed Asia Minor, sharing the gospel and delivering letters. 
He was a courier. Throughout his travels, he would visit old friends, meet some new friends. We read from Ephesians 6, he served the Ephesian church in more ways than just delivering a letter. It says this in verse 22, Paul saying, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So, what additional information about Tychicus can we share? Now it's just in my head, man. Undoubtedly, much was said that was not written in this letter, right? There were personal conversations about the family and like how the kids are doing. They're, they've gotten so old and they're so tall. It's the type of conversations we all have with each other. We know from Acts 20 that Paul was personal friends with the elders in Ephesus. He spent his time preaching and teaching them, and I'm sure they wanted to know how their friend Paul was doing because he was in prison, and Tithicus was going to say, this is how Paul's doing. And I think it's necessary from time to time to step back and remember more is going on in the lives of the characters we read in the Bible than what is actually written on the page. The Bible is actually very raw and real in that respect. A lot is said, but more is going on. There are people, actual people who lived in history. Tychicus was a real person who had family and friends, and when he came to town, I'm sure there were handshakes and hugs, late-night conversations to catch up on what's taken place. I know I'm making assumptions, but an elementary knowledge of just the human nature tells me more was going on than what we read in Scripture. With that said, we should focus on what we do know. We know the information shared in this letter is essential for the church. The best news and words of encouragement for the church are contained in the letter. I'm sure Tithicus had a lot to share, but the best news and the best means of, of encouragement are actually in that scroll. Tithicus surely added his own information and encouragement, but the meat and potatoes for the church are actually in the letter. And here's what we've seen throughout our journey in the book of Ephesians. God breaks into the most broken places of a person's life. Are there areas of brokenness in your life? Have you gone through hardship? Well, God breaks in. God breaks into those places. That is what we have seen in Ephesians. And God provides healing for the person when they are made known by Christ. This is what we've seen through six chapters. So in light of everything we've learned, I'm going to break up this letter kind of into three chunks. Chunk one is going to be like, we're going to sit. We're going to remind ourselves of what we learned. And then we're going to walk, and then we're going to stand. So if you're a note taker and you like headings, sit, uh, sit, walk, and stand are your headings. I'll briefly go through each piece to help you see, once again, the goodness that comes from being a Christian and the restoration that accompanies when you are in Christ. So chapters 1 to 3, you sit and you take in all the rich theology. The word theology simply means study of God. Chapters 4 to 5, you begin to apply God's word by walking in a particular way. We saw that word over and over again in in Ephesians 4 and 5. And then in chapter 6, we're called to stand against the evil one. Saw that last week, the evil one being the devil. After each of these chunks, I'm going to share some points of application. All right, chapter 1, here we go. Buckle up. We read how God knew about you, chose you for adoption before the world was created. Saw that right out of the shoot in chapter 1. 
according to God's purposes, according to his will. God set his electing love upon your life, Christian. Like, that's mind-blowing. I mean, I just couldn't help but step back when we were in Ephesians 1 and think to myself, before Genesis 1-1, God chose me to be adopted. That's crazy. That's crazy awesome. And if you don't believe me, go read Ephesians 1. <laughs> it's right there. As, re- as a result, God has made known to you the mystery of his will. What specifically has he made known to you? If you are a Christian, God has made known to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. God has shown you that believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the path toward forgiveness, healing, and reconciliation with God. One more note about chapter 1. You cannot read Ephesians 1 without being slapped in the face with this, in a good way, with this idea that you are united in Christ. You are united in Christ. I mean, I, I put this up on the screen for you because I really want you to see it. Over and over again, we saw this. You have received blessings because you are in Christ. <laughs> when you're not in Christ, you don't receive those blessings. <laughs> you have been chosen in Christ, as I already said, before the foundation of the world. In the love of Christ, you were predestined for adoption. Did a whole message on just what does it mean to be adopted by God? In Christ, you have redemption through the blood of Christ. Because you are in Christ, you have been forgiven of your sins and trespasses. You see a theme? I hope so. When you are in Christ, blessings are just lavished upon your life by God's grace. He's just pouring out blessings upon your life. In Christ, you have obtained an inheritance. Think about heaven. The inheritance that God has secured for me and for you, brothers and sisters, because you are in Christ. And the greatest part of that inheritance is Christ himself. In Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Meaning, when God said, you are mine, You've been sealed for eternity by the Holy Spirit. The devil cannot take that away. You are God's. You are God's. You've been sealed. I mean, just so many blessings, so much to see when we are in Christ. Apart from Christ, all these benefits are void, and you are actually, as what we saw in Ephesians, you're an enemy of God. But when you're united to Christ, all these and more are yours because you are God's son or daughter. You were God's son or daughter. Parents have a deep love for their children. Like good parents have a deep love for their children. God's love for you, Christian, is much deeper. Much deeper. I'll do anything for my kids. Now how much more is God willing to do and give me his son? Chapter two, that was just chapter one. That was just chapter one. I wonder, you wonder why Peter O'Brien said this is the greatest book ever written, every piece of literature ever written. Chapter 2. What stands out in chapter 2? Two main ideas stand out to me. First, you are utterly hopeless without God changing your heart. Think of it this way. Have you ever been able to change your own heart, spiritually speaking? 
I tried doing that for 22 years. Well, maybe about seven years after I started thinking about spiritual things. Tried so hard to change my own heart. I couldn't do it. But then God breaks in. He's the one who changes the heart. You do remember this passage? Here's Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you were, Christian. That's who you were. I've always said you cannot understand the good news unless you understand Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, which is indeed the bad news. This is who you were. Rebelling against God time and time again. The Bible uses stronger language than I use, which is you were a child of wrath. You were an actual child of wrath. You deserve judgment in hell. You are a child of wrath following another master. If you are a child of wrath in your sin, you are, what do we read in that particular passage? Following the world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the desires of the flesh and the mind. Did a whole sermon on those three verses alone. Following any of these three is an act of rebelling against God. However, verse 4 is where we see the hope of the gospel. Verse 4, but God, but God. Like, just let that sink in. But God breaks in. Being what? Rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. That is crazy, amazing, and awesome. You see, it takes God to break in to change your cold, dead heart. A dead heart cannot make itself alive. It takes outside intervention. It takes God. Whether, you're, whether God breaks in at age 4, 14, 40, or 80, it takes God every single time. You cannot save yourself. It takes God. Man, I'm just reflecting in my own head as I speak when God broke in on my cold, dead heart. For so long, I tried to do it on my own. And I failed every single time. But does God fail? No, he's faithful. And when he broke in, man, done deal. Done deal. But God. The second piece of information from this chapter is the heart of the gospel. Not only is God rich in mercy, which means withholding the punishment that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion. Like we deserve, we deserve hell. We deserve the punishment. But God is rich in mercy. But not only, he extends grace to us. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And there's nothing you did to earn God's grace or favor. Perhaps you've tried for so long, just like, God, will you like me? You can't do that. No, he extends it to you. He says, here is my unmerited grace. Would you just walk in that? Would you just walk in that? Live in my grace. And it's by that grace in which you have saved. There is no other way to read Ephesians than to read that. God does all the work, and you are a joyful recipient of God's unmerited saving grace. 
Isn't that a much better way to think about your relationship with God than it being dependent upon you to do something? I mean, how much, how good does God seem when he's the one who says, here it is, here you go. Not only do you get all those blessings from Ephesians 1, but it is my grace and mercy that I pour out on your life. Stop striving. Rest in his grace and mercy. Stop striving. I I mean, we we just got through Ephesians 2. Just some highlights. Ephesians 3. Now we're just kind of, remember, we're just sitting, we're just taking in the the theology, trying to study God and study what God has said. Ephesians 3. So Ephesians 1 lays out God's plan of salvation before the world was created. Ephesians 2, how to become a partaker in God's plan. And Ephesians 3 causes us to revel in the depths of God's plan so that we might know the fullness of God in our lives. Here's just the taste of Ephesians 3. Now, I'm just, I'm putting the pressure on you to go back and read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Here's another taste of God's word from Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, all the saints, like going back to Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, Peter, John, Antithicus, all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Think about all that you know and everything you could find out on Google. God's love is greater, it is deeper, it is wider, and it surpasses all that knowledge. When you are known by Christ, it's just it's an explosion. It surpasses the knowledge. There's, there's a special kind of love that God has for his children. It's a love that cannot be matched or rivaled. It's a love more fantastic than any knowledge. It's a love that, when experienced, transforms the human heart. It's a love that can only be received through being made known by Jesus Christ. Now, let's pause before reviewing chapters 4 to 6. Wouldn't you say Tithicus is providing information of encouragement here as you just go through Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3? Absolutely. I think so. And as I've said several times, chapters 1 to 3 are rich theology. Like, if you want to begin to understand who God is and who you are in light of God, just, just live in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3. In a sense, you're sitting down and drinking deep of theological truths. We could spend another year going through these particular chapters and just soak in the goodness of what God says to us. These chapters are so foundational that, again, I encourage you to go read it for yourselves over and over and over. Even do it in the next day or two. Don't like reading? Get the audio app. Listen to it. So what's the point of all the theology in Ephesians 1 to 3? A little bit of application here. Here's why sitting and pondering theology matters in life. Every single person who's ever lived is a theologian. You might not think you are, but you are. R.C. Sproul even wrote a book on everyone's a theologian. Every person is either actively or passively believing in something or someone. Even an atheist is a theologian. The real question is, have you taken the time to think about what you believe and why? 
Ephesians 1 to 3 presents a compelling belief system that answers humanity's most pressing questions. Namely, what do you do with your sin? And how can a person, how can you be reconciled to a God who is holy, who is just, who is sinless, who created the whole world and it was good until we messed it up? How do you be reconciled to a holy and good God? Ephesians 1 to 3 helps answer those particular questions. To answer these questions and others are what causes you to walk the Christian life and stand firm in the truth. So now let's move on to walk. So you want to sit, study, think well about who God is and who you are in, in relationship with God. Now let's walk. When you turn the page to Ephesians 4, a, this new dynamic is introduced. We read theology is turning into practice. So in light of what you know, what do you do? In light of what you know about God, and because of what God has done to redeem and restore your sinful soul, how are you to live? Here's Ephesians 4, verses, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, that's Paul talking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. We read that word called in Ephesians 1. In light of you being called by God, the word's electos in the Greek, live in light of that particular calling. Walk it out. God tells you to walk, peripateo, in your new life. There's no need to go back to how you once lived, but right now and for the rest of your life, live for God. Like the temptation as Christians, right? Because sin does remain, There's, right? We all, live, we all know that. The temptation is to go back. Go back before the but God moment. And, and, and God says, no. Right now, where you sit, stand up and walk. Stand up and walk. Honoring the God who saved you from the punishment due because of your sin. The metaphor walk is repeatedly used in the second half of, the, of Ephesians. Here are the cliff notes of how you are to walk. Walk knowing that when you were saved by the grace of the gospel, the old self was taken off and the new self was put on. It's like, it's like you took off those old clothes, you found the burn pie, you got, grabbed the gasoline and the match, and away the flame went, and you have new clothes given to you by God. Now you are set apart for his glory. That was Ephesians 4, verse 17. It says also in Ephesians 5, verse 2, walk in love. You walk in a particular kind of love, not the shallow love that is offered by this world and offered by the culture, but you're to walk in the love of Christ. What is it like to walk in the love of Christ? Well, Christ died in your place, did he not? He died in your place because he loved you. The only sinless person to ever live died on a cross for a bunch of wretched sinners. I would say that is the greatest act of love in human history. The greatest act of love in human history for you. Man, doesn't that not soften the heart? That God would do that for you, Christian. That is the kind of love that you are now to walk in. That self-sacrificial love that we see in Christ, we are now to emulate in our own lives. You're also called to walk as children of the light. That was Ephesians 5, verse 8. Remember knowing Christ, 
Before knowing Christ, you lived in perpetual darkness where, where sin just ran roughshod over your life. But when the light of the Christ moved upon your heart, everything changed. Sin had been exposed, and Christ claims you as, as his own. Like, nah, that's mine. A person is mine. And now you live in light of that light. So the light of Christ comes upon you, and you share that with others. You walk in the light. And finally, you walk as wise, Ephesians 5, verse 15. There's a lot of foolishness going on in the world. I think we all can agree upon that. But frankly, it's not anything new. This isn't something new, like, man, a lot of dumb things going on. No, it's just kind of humanity. A lot of foolishness. And the devil is fooling an awful lot of people. But you're no longer under the sway of the devil, the evil one. You tap into the wisdom that God has supplied for you. And where does the supply come from? Well, from the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And we have God's word. How do I walk as wise? Open up the Bible. <laughs> Ask the Holy Spirit for help. With the Spirit and God's Word, you can now make sense of the world and your own life. With the Spirit and God's Word, you can walk wisely navigating the landmines that exist in all of our lives. Now, what about application as we walk out our Christian life? Let's think through how to apply Ephesians 4 and 5. Why does God call you to walk differently from how you once walked? Three reasons come to mind. First, God is showing you a better way to live so that you can flourish. Yes, God wants you to flourish in your life. God's ways are always, always, always better than our ways. Always, every single time. So God wants you to flourish. That's why we walk in a particular way. Number two, how you live, how you walk is a gospel witness to a watching world. Plainly stated, other people are watching and you want others to see Christ in you. That light that is in you, you want others to see that. You want others to know that you've been transformed by the grace of the gospel. So people are watching, man. People are. Number three, God set you apart for himself and for his glory. When when God chose Israel in the Old Testament, he desired them to live differently from the surrounding culture. That was their perpetual issue, man. God's like, hey, I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to take you out of slavery. We're going to cross the Red Sea. By the way, I'm going to part those waters so you can walk through the Red Sea, which is pretty crazy. Don't have food? Here's some manna. Need some water? Look at that rock. <laughs> you know, it's like God provided it over and over. He's like, but here's the deal, guys. I just, I want you to live for me and not for the world. And they just couldn't do it over and over again. Again, like a moth to the flame. Like, let's go idolize that. And just away they went. God wants the church to live differently for God, for him. Why? So that we can be a blessing to the nations. And we can show the world that we indeed worship the one true God. The one who created the world. The one who sustains the world. Listen, nothing has changed for the church in terms of the messaging from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God has set his people apart for his glory, and he, and he wants the church, he wants us to walk in that reality. We are set apart for the same reasons. So that's Ephesians 4 and 5. Now Ephesians 6. Sit, walk, now we stand.
or withstand. Because here's what we all know about life. The most dangerous landmines are found in the home. Didn't we not see that in Ephesians, right? We read about God's design for the home at the end of Ephesians 5 and in Ephesians 6. We read several times in Ephesians 6 to stand firm because the devil tries to frustrate the most essential elements in our life, our marriage, our parenting. And then we got into the bond servant master thing. Remember, God is specific about two structures in your life, the home and the church. God has ordained the home and the church. Both institutions are addressed in Ephesians. Therefore, it is vital to understand how God has ordered the home and the church so that you can flourish as followers of Jesus Christ. Again, back to that word again. God wants you to flourish. And God says, here's how you can flourish. Here's what you can do. It's right here in the book. It makes it plain for us. But here's what we also know. This was certainly last week. Spiritual warfare is a present reality along with your physical realities. You cannot disconnect the physical from the spiritual. Therefore, you stand firm and withstand the evil one. Here's how Ephesians 6 and your call to stand connects with sitting and walking, right? So how do you kind of take a string and tie it all together from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 6? In Ephesians 1 to 3, the plan of God is to save is made known. I think it's really plain in Ephesians 1 to 3. Ephesians 4 to 5 are the result of believing in chapters 1 to 3. It's just beautifully laid out. Here's what you believe, now here's what you do. And the devil is not pleased with any of it. There is a battle between good and evil, and you are either, you're on one side of the battle. There is no neutral here. There's no neutrality. There's no, no Switzerland's. <laughs> None of you are Switzerland. You're either in a battle for good or a battle for evil. The question is, what side are you on? And that's what we saw in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. Therefore, you need to be prepared, which is why Paul says that you are covered with, with armor as you fight against and withstand the devil. Now, again, just trying to give an overview of 27 weeks of Ephesians. Antipachus had a lot to share with the Ephesian church and for Redemption Hill Church. He had a lot to share. He brings information and encouragement. Again, you might not have heard of Tychicus until this morning, but I hope you see the impact of this sixth man, the guy who comes off the bench. Just a regular dude. And God says, yeah, I'm going to use you. And, and, and actually, I'm going to use you. And man, you're going to change so many hearts. And yet, we never heard of him until this morning. The letter to the Ephesians ends with a few sentences that sound like a benediction. A benediction is simply a spoken blessing. In the context of the local church, pastors like myself um, have the privilege of announcing a divine blessing on the people of God as they scatter from the, from the place that they meet for corporate worship, right? I mean, I'll end our service with a benediction. At the, at the end of Ephesians 3, we read this. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. That's a great benediction. It, it was BOGO for the Ephesians. They got two benedictions in their letter. It's like at the end of Ephesians 3, they got a benediction, and at the end of Ephesians 6, they got a, a benediction from Paul. Now here is the end of Ephesians 6. 
peace to the brothers in love with faith from God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. In these verses, you hear God's affection for the church. You hear his affection for the people in the church. It feels like an overload of words to express affection. We read words like peace, love, faith, and grace in those last two verses. God wants you to be at peace because of what Christ has done for you. God pours upon the church an abundance of love with faith. And if you love Jesus, the grace of God is with you as you go. The words peace, love, and faith, and and grace are a a summary, basically, of the letter to the Ephesians. In and through Christ, these truths are at work in the church. As the peace of Christ is extended to you, what do you do now? You extend it to others. As the love of Christ is extended to you, what do you do now? You extend that to others. As the grace of God is extended to you, what do you do now? You extend it to others. As God encourages you to have greater faith in Him, you walk with others with the same goal, encouraging them in their faith. Tithicus succeeded, obviously, in delivering this, le- this letter. He probably hung around for a few days, a week, a month. We don't know. But Tithicus would leave and continue to be God's letter courier. We know that the next letter Tithicus would deliver would be for Paul to the church at Colossae, Colossians. Tithicus was on mission to declare the good news of the gospel to non-Christians experiencing brokenness and to the church, who at the time certainly was living in a hostile culture. God may not have a physical letter to give you, like to deliver to your neighbor, neighbor, right? He might not be asking you to travel hundreds of miles as a missionary courier. Or he might be. He might be. I'm not going to discount that. But after all we've learned in Ephesians, how can you not look for opportunities to be the light of Christ in the places God has you? Right? All that we've seen, all that God has done for you, how can we not be like, man, I got a lot of good work ahead of me. How can I be like Titicus? I mean, don't you want to open up Ephesians 1 and explain to an, an unbeliever all the ways that God blesses? Like, man, this is what God does for those whom he has saved. Like, that's impacted my life. I hope it's impacted your life when we looked at Ephesians 1. Why would we not want to share that with somebody else? Like, when we looked at Ephesians 2, wouldn't we want to show someone the power and depth of God's unmerited saving grace? Like, man, I'm just thinking about somebody I've had a conversation with this week. And I'm developing a relationship with him at the coffee shop that I go to. And I'm, and I'm this close to sitting him down and opening up Ephesians 2. God's doing something in his life. I just want to be like, man, stop trying to do it on your own. God actually has a better way. His way. And wouldn't we want to share that good news with other people, right? And you can share one verse after another about the glories of God. The letter to the Ephesians was written to show how the power of the gospel restores broken people to God. Anyone who's been saved by the grace of the gospel knows that. 
And we also know God is still at work, which is good. And this message is for all of us to share. So as we kind of close the book of Ephesians, and we're going to transition next week to a sermon series on suffering. Do not let the message of Ephesians run idle in your mind. Be active. Go back to God's word. Read it. Be encouraged. But also go share that with someone else. As a church, that's what we're all about. Declaring the good news of the gospel for the glory of God. Not only do we do that with each other, but we do that with a world that is really broken in need of hope. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.